Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Our guest on this episode is Andy Wood, a modern guitar god with lots of impressive credits, both uh, live and in the studio. But I think most impressive is the breadth and quality of his own work as a recording artist. Um, and, and we're excited to dive into that. Thanks a lot for being here with us, Andy. Oh, it's my pleasure, fellas. These are clips from two songs from the album Caught Between the Truth and a Lie. The first, a bluegrass, newgrass thing, is called The Truth. The second, a rock treatment of the same music, is called A Lie. So Andy, you're a commanding figure in both of these realms. Uh, did you ever consider, or was anyone around you ever suggesting that you kind of go all in in one direction? I don't think anybody's ever called me a commanding figure. I, I do not have that stature. This is a, <laughs> so this is a first thing. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Exciting. I feel like I'm a very normal sized individual. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that, man. Very kind words. Um, yeah, that, that, that track, it's kind of like the uh, the first time I really explored the idea of a mission statement on a record, you know, huh. and uh, it was always hard to convey the question at this point in my life. When I made that record, I was coming out of a rock band called Down From Up and we had toured with bands like Seven Dust and 10 years and we were a modern rock band, a lot of drop tunings, a lot of playing fast kind of thing, a lot of distortion and um the band, you know, was kind of slipping out and, and not, not going to chase the thing anymore. And a lot of folks didn't realize I played a lot of bluegrass because they'd met me in those circles and they were like, Oh, he's a shredder or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make a record that was like, all right, here's all of this acoustic background ranging from everything that like a singer songwriter esque to traditional bluegrass to like you said, almost that new grass environment. There's some Celtic stuff on there, just a real, broad stroke of all my acoustic influences and on the electric side there was like 23 tracks on that album something like that yeah and on the electric side was all of the different influences i had from that you know there was danny elfman influences dream theater influences uh some brent mason chicken picking influences and i needed and i thought it would be clever you know um to to have the same song represented on both sides of the album but yeah you know kind of coming up in one world and, and ended up in another and living in both kind of thing is what I'm all about. Yeah. It was, it was just fascinating listening to all of it that clearly you could have decided 
to take up residence in one or the other, you know, and Ben, uh, and you know, you have, you have the chops to do either thing. And so I was fascinated with kind of the decision or, or maybe it was just inevitable, you know, that you were going to do both things. Maybe you just are both things. Yeah. It felt like lying to myself, really. If I like anytime, you know, you guys obviously interview a lot of musicians and you probably talk some music business around anytime I'd talk to anybody in the music business that wasn't a player. Um, mm -hmm. by that, I mean, someone who wasn't on the a producer or a great piano player or whatever, someone who wasn't a player, they would always be like, well, what's your sound? And I was mm -hmm. just like, that's right. not a great question when you can play Bill Monroe songs and you also, you know, can play Van Halen songs. Most people don't enjoy going that far down the rabbit hole on both sides, you know, mm -hmm. and not even just a twofold thing with bluegrass and rock. Like I, I like fusion and I like sure, all these sure. other things and I like film score guys and stuff. And I, I, that question always felt bad to me. Like it felt like, felt like whichever one I answered, I was lying to myself on the, the other side of the coin. And just, so I was just like, man, I, I've got to make a body of work that, that is my answer for me. So when somebody says, what do you sound like? I'm like, here, click this link. You figure it out. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I love you know, the uh, the between uh, the truth and a lie it acknowledges that you have a foot in either of these realms. And it, it has a, a concept that, that divides them into kind of digestible sides of your personality. But I, I love um, Disconcerting Amalgam, your, your first album, because it's so unapologetic and just like throwing out this demented playlist of things that don't match at all. Uh, yeah. All which sound really like nobody would put that together on their own. And you just kind of like threw it out there with all these like, you know, Big Mon next to these kind of Joe Satriani sounding songs um, of this kind of cool contemplative version of Amazing Grace. And it's like, this is all on one album just in a row. I love it. that that was uh the infinite wisdom of a 25 year old kid with very little budget and 10 days to make a record <laughs> so it was a pretty I, exciting amalgam yeah when you, when you, yeah that's where the, the name came from a justification really because we had it all done and i was like well what is this mess and the reality was is i couldn't again it goes back to like not trying to lie to myself and hide one side of my musical background it, it's funny in today's world um it's not as definitive as it used to be or, or what, it, maybe that's not the right word, but like when you get online today and you go to Jason Isbell's page and he's 
playing some rock licks that aren't on Jason Isbell records. A lot of his fans will be like, oh man, I didn't realize, or, you know what I'm saying? And that's mm-hmm. just one example. Same way if, if you go to some shred guys page and they're playing some beautiful ballad, they're like, oh man, I didn't know you did all this stuff. It's like, that, isn't, that, isn't that kind of not awesome? Like, wouldn't you want everyone to like have a window into your, um, into who you are, you know? And, and again, it's like every artist has to find their own statement. And I'm a fan of, all the guys that I'm naming, I'm not going to name anybody in this interview that I don't absolutely love everything they do. Uh, but yeah, it's like for me personally, when somebody's like, what do you sound like? It's like, man, I, you catch me on any given day on any given instrument and you're going to get a different answer. And translating that to the world was like, I, I don't want to feel like I'm hiding one aspect of my playing or another. And I also don't want to feel like I've got to apologize for you know, it's like the, to the rock kids, the bluegrass wasn't cool. And to the bluegrass kids and the Americana kids, the rock stuff, shred stuff wasn't cool. I was like, man, I don't want to apologize to anybody for the stuff that I like. I mean, I'll listen to Pavarotti and I know that's not for everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's it. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, craft brood music is kind of all about, um, shining a spotlight on music that falls across genre boundaries and, Aaron and I came up as fans of Bela Fleck and the Flectones, which is like, to me, one of the great examples of that. And, um, you know, but then especially back in the days of the record store, uh, where there's a certain bin, you know, a certain part of the store you go to, to find something, or, or nowadays when you put out a record, you have to select what, you know, what genre it is when you submit it. Um, how have you, uh, how have the audiences responded? Like uh, people have expectations, I would imagine, you know, at least if they don't know you expectations of it being this thing or another thing, have you found that the bluegrass kids you mentioned go with you all the way into the rock world and vice versa? And, it, and it's a seamless thing. I've found that it's been a bit more exploratory for fans that didn't know they maybe liked something else. I'll give you a couple examples. Like I, I would get hired to do a small set. Like there's these rock cruises, like ship rocked. Yeah. And I, I love being asked to be a part of this. I think I was on the second one that they ever did maybe. And uh, I was asked to be on it, you know, at a very young point in my career. And as my career grew, they gave me better slots and invited me to do different things and, you know, whatever. And the most recent one, I was really fun. They, you know, did a, a mega artist jam and it was me and some of the guys from Living Color, you know, rocking out and stuff. So it's like, it's been fun to be a part of this thing that happens year after year, right? So a lot of these fans that come to Ship Rock are there to see mega rock bands we're talking like your altar bridge or whatever you know what i mean breaking benjamins or whatever you know those kind of bands and they would see me and i would cater my set to be more rocking for example i would play more of the lie you know what i mean that way you know it's like it's my job as an entertainer to respect my audience you know what i mean i think that's thing that is very important to me is respecting the listener that's in the room And I wanted to give them a little bit, but in the show, I would always sneak in just a little bit of something more Southern for lack of better word. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And no matter how I did that, whether that may be, uh, you know, something that was like sticking out a little more like a Marshall Tucker song, or maybe it would be something of mine that that's like more of the chicken picking bluegrassy kind of side. And I always watched people in the room kind of light up with that. Oh, I'm surprised. This, yeah, this yeah. is fun. Like mm-hmm. you think about what makes Bela Fleck great. And in no way am I comparing myself to Bela Fleck. He's one of my all time favorite heroes. But like the thing that makes him incredible is he's always presenting you with an element of surprise, no matter what 
you go see and vice versa. When I would play Americana festivals, um, there's a good friend of mine who is, you know, a, a songwriter in Nashville named Dave Kennedy. And we, we work a lot together. Um, he and he's the one that's singing dust and ashes. Okay. So mm-hmm. I you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, uh, Dave, Dave and I would do a lot more Southern things or BMI things. And I would always creep in, you know, just moments of, it, of, of self-indulgent notiness. You know what I mean? Something that you're not really going to get a lot of at Americana gig. And <laughs> it was always fun to watch people who think that they didn't like that stuff kind of light up and you see people smiling and stuff. And that's where, you know, I always felt good, like kind of bringing one listener into the world. And then I've got, you know, of course that, that always ends up following up with messages and emails, people saying that they saw me on Shiprocked and now they bought a, uh, flat and Scruggs record, you know what I mean? Cause yeah, they, yeah. they were enticed by like some, some bluegrass offerings and now they've discovered something that they didn't really realize that they liked. So, you know, that's kind of how I thought about it. So on your, uh, on your, on your third album, uh, junk town, there's a tune called uh, Beyond the Reef, and that's got uh, mandolin playing uh, the melody, and then it's kind of got this Joe Satriani vibe going on as well. Do you feel like in your third album, you kind of took these two realms and evolved toward blending them? Absolutely. Bingo. That's like where I've taken my life on a musical approach. Uh, Junktown was, Junk was the record that I was like, if I died tomorrow what would be the one that I feel like would define my existence to this point musically? Uh, If you noticed in all the other albums, the music was segregated. This is the bluegrass song. This is the shred song. This is the fusion song. Uh, I wanted to make it to where if I just walked in a room and somebody inevitably asked me, what do you sound like? I would just play junk town because it's got all of the elements, you know, of the, the country Southern flair. There's some fusion elements. There's some, uh, you know, rock elements. And then when you talk about beyond the reef, that actually was inspired from more of the, the fandom that I have for scores. That's actually inspired by a video game and, Ooh. uh, and some of the, the moments in that video game. And, and that, that, what if I was the film score guy, you know, what does this part of this game sound like to me? And I didn't want the mandolin to only have a purpose to play bluegrass slicks, right? Like I was like, why can't a mandolin and a distorted guitar live together on the same stage? And that inspiration comes from the Dixie Dregs and Steve Morse and Colonel Bruce Hampton. And, you know, it's like all that stuff.
to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, the Craft Brood Music app, a curated music discovery app that streams music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. To hear more Craft Brood music, download the Craft Brood music app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free two-week trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brood Music, the music discovery app for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. As a player, um, I think your path is unique. Uh, I, as a guitar player, have a much more traditional American path of being like a frustrated, angry for no reason, 13-year-old with like a sparkly red Kramer with one humbucker trying to play Kirk Hammett solos. Perfect. And yeah, right. <laughs> for, at the time, it filled my hate hole for yeah. no reason. I don't know why I had it then, but I did. Uh, and then like as I, you know, as I grew with it, uh, you know, I, you know, learned about Giusatriani, learned about Steve Vai, learned about Eddie Van Halen. And then my Aunt Wendy, who features prominently in this podcast as a uh, as a source of good taste, uh, gave me my first Bela Fleck album and the Fleck Tones. And that opened up a whole nother rabbit hole into Strength in Numbers and Sam Bush and Barry Douglas. And finally, only as an adult, you know, probably in my late 20s, I finally, you know, hit Nirvana and discovered Tony Rice. But your path is kind of an inversion of that typical American kid with a guitar path uh, that you started on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, music to me was something that was a family event. My grandfather played. And he got, you know, in my generation, there was just me and my cousin for many, many years. And we were five and six years old. And, and, and in that, in that age of five, six, seven, you know, however, that, that, that beginning of life kind of thing, as soon as we were old enough to hold the instruments, you know, Gramps, he put the instruments in our hands and we sat on the porch and played and that, that continued till I was late into my teens. And then, you know, uh, I had no intentions of being an electric guitar player. And then all of a sudden I heard Brent Mason's solo on the Mark O'Connor album, pick it apart. Ironically, I'd bought that album because Sam Bush was playing mandolin on it and Mm -hmm. Bela Fleck was playing banjo. And I bought it because it was an album that had predominantly acoustic instruments on it, but there were like four songs uh, that were shredding electric type songs and Mark just blazing on the fiddle and like hearing Brent play the electric guitar. I was like, well, I got to get one of those. And I got to figure out how to do it. And fast forward a couple of years, I was in Pigeon Forge as a, uh, not even a couple of years, maybe a year. I was in Pigeon Forge working at one of the theaters and the guitar player on the theater, I was playing acoustic and mandolin. The guitar player had saw me backstage playing and warming up and he had noticed my right hand technique was predominantly alternate picking everything. And he's like, oh man, you probably love Paul Gilbert and Steve Morse, huh? And I was like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> and he goes, what? So he made a mixtape, mix CD of all the things that I should know. So that was like Cliffs of Dover, Passion and Warfare, uh, you know, uh, Stress Fest and all these Dixie Dregs things and, you know, Eruption, whatever, you know, all the all the the, the veritable items that a, that a teenage guitar player should have heard by that point. And yeah. I, I'd never heard them. So it was like waking up one day and somebody telling me the world wasn't flat, you know, and I, that, <laughs> that's that's kind of, yeah, I did come into it backwards. But I think that's a really fun perspective because, you know, it, it allowed me to digest uh, different technical challenges in the electric guitar. And I'd already had the facility built because of acoustic playing 
and alternate mm-hmm. picking being so formative on mandolin. So I had a bit of a leg up there. Uh, disadvantages obviously were like, you know, any kind of legato or economy playing. I was like, what? How's he playing <laughs> a note without touching anything, you know, or watching Ed and Steve Vai do the tapping thing. It was like watching my main, my brain fall out of my face. You know, I got it. it made no sense to me. Everything else I'd seen was just like people picking every note. So, you know, it had its, its challenges and it also had its weaknesses. And, you know, every day I, I try to try to just keep plowing through and, and finding my own sound and, and bringing those two planets closer in line with each other, because, you know, really high octane bluegrass you can see how it is with billy strings in today's world it's like rock guys like him you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and that's not because billy string isn't playing you know doc watson licks i mean good lord i i you if you were to play a drinking game and have a shot every time billy played a doc watson lick you'd be hammered in the first (laughs) minute and a half you know it's like he is keeping the playing very traditional very traditional you know, and he's just, he's bringing it to the crowd, to the fish and widespread panic fans with a, a different coat of paint, maybe is how you could say it. And, uh, I think, I think it shows the, the, the appeal of bluegrass, uh, without people thinking it's all straw hats and no teeth, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and vice versa, you see bluegrass fans seeing Billy and they think it's like, you know, they're like, Oh man, maybe that rock stuff's kind of cool. You know, maybe they will get, into you know something that's a little heavier uh a little more distorted or whatever so i think you know i think it's the nature of the internet combined in with that it's you can't just point at an artist in today's world you have to point at you know if you go to anybody's social media that likes guitar it's not going to be one style of guitar eventually you're going to find some, a Joe pass in someone who predominantly listens to Ingbe Malmsteen. You know, it's just like the social media has made the whole world um, musically more accessible, you know, and guys have more exposure to find stuff and not just have to dig through bins at CD departments. Like what you're talking about. I think all of this goes hand in hand. Yeah. You can have, you have all of the albums, all of them <laughs> on your yeah. phone, you know? And, and incidentally, that is the love child I want to meet is the Yingby Malmsteen and uh, Joe pass, Love child. I want to, oh, I, I want think, to know, I think I that's that Tom like. Quill or Jack Gardner or some of those British fusion guys. Like that's, that's those cats. Like Tom has that Holdsworth style legato. Jack's got great economy picking and they play with lots of distortion and, it, but, but they have that really expansive jazz vocabulary. I mean like those, those, you know, when you say those, what if kind of things, it's like, I can point to players in today's landscape that like, there's your guy. You, if you want to hear, Joe Pass mixed with Shred, get, listen to Tom Quill. Like he's going to play some Bill Evans tunes with distortion. And it's awesome. Yeah. One of the things I really so, like about your playing, uh, Andy, is um, it seems to, to kind of maintain the bluegrass ethic where everybody, like no, there's no drummer in a, in a bluegrass ensemble, but kind of everybody has to be the drummer. And so you take anyone in isolation, they got that pulse that's relentless. And I feel that with your electric guitar playing as well, that there's that same kind of grouping of notes and articulation that has has that same kind of uh, mandolin uh, sensibility to it that makes makes it a unique voice in the rock world. I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's ironic that my mandolin playing and my electric guitar playing are both probably most influenced by banjo players. Um, if you listen to the, the way that I solo 
Um, even on Truth and Lie, listen to those two tracks. Even in the mandolin playing, there's those kind of like open string drone 16th note runs that are, yeah. I mean, I straight up ripped those from Bela Fleck and Tony Trishka. <laughs> and like that, like that's where that came from. So when I went to electric guitar, you know, the sound in my head, when I hear improvising, even over jazz standards, I hear that rolling sound in my head of that, that, that kind of thing that you're talking about driving the pulse, um, as if there's no, no drummer. And, and unfortunately I have to reel myself in. I can't drink too much caffeine because I tend to rush <laughs> if I do. So it's like, you know, again, it's like wearing that bluegrass influence on your sleeve. You have to really not rush. Yeah. So when you heard the, you know, when you were handed that, that mixtape showing you all the electric guitar stuff, was that, was the, you know, like flipping a switch that was, you were gone, you were going to do that. Done. Cliffs of Dover intro. By the time he got to that really <laughs> iconic, um, that little pedal tone lick that he does. It's like, I was done. I was like, this is it. EJ was one of my biggest influences. It still is. I mean, he's it, the back to Austin track on junk town is a, is a love letter and thank you note, whatever you want to call it. Tip of the hat to EJ. Um, you know, my, my playing early on in the twin in my early twenties, I was so obsessed with it. I had to stop listening to it because I was losing my own personality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. everywhere I played, everybody's like, Oh man, yeah, you got the EJ thing. Oh yeah. EJ. And I, at first I was really, you know, I loved that comparison, but then I was like, wait a minute, I'm only going to be second best EJ. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That's so, an interesting yeah. comment. Uh, you know, I was, I was going to mention your, uh, recurring segment on your, uh, your, uh, YouTube channel under the influence where you, pay homage to some of your favorites and Brent Mason, uh, Tony Rice, Sam Bush, and Eric Johnson are all featured there and your ability to you know, kind of conjure, you know, their sound and uh, their technique and their approach to phrasing is, is uncanny. And I'm sure it's a great asset as a sideman and a studio player when people want you to deliver that kind of stuff. But one of the questions that occurred to us is, as a, um, as an artist who is, uh, you know, developing and maintaining your own voice, you know, what are the challenges there and, and being so immersed in those styles and able to deliver them for other people as a studio guy or as a sideman uh, to your own, you know, challenges to reconciling that with your own musical journey? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're really just really putting a really elaborate, beautiful wording around one simple question. What's your sound? You know, and that's one of the things I talk about on my Patreon all the time is like, you've got to make sure that you finding your voice in the world. Um, to quote Steve Vai, he has one of my favorite quotes and it stays close to my heart. He said, the only way to sound like me is to sound like you. And, mm. uh, and, and I appreciate the fact that you said I can conjure some of those tones. I feel like it's like, man, it's like, I, I hear all the nuance and I'm like, man, I'm 40% at best, but a lot of people really love it when I do the EJ trick or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, I, I think that's just kind of like the nature of how players find their sound is like, I look at it like a big old bowl of soup or gumbo or something. I get a little bit of this, a little bit of that, mix it all together, you know, but I try not to just regurgitate 
licks. It's almost like phrasing and dialect and, and watching an actor speak with a British accent, even though they might be from Kansas or something. You know what I mean? It's like just taking little moments and, and, and finding that. And that translate that keeps scoping out from just players. I mean, you can look at say again, like Holdsworth. I mean, his influence was, was saxophone players, you know? And if somebody were like, ask me what my influence is, it'd be banjo players. Like even the backup melody in, 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 uh, beyond the reef, that, that electric guitar part that's cycling is more reminiscent. If you were to hear a banjo player play that, you'd be like, Oh, that just sounds normal. I yeah. think the only thing that makes it not sound normal is the fact that it's happening on a distorted guitar, you know? So yeah, yeah to me, it's, I think, I think it's, it's loving your influences, respecting your influences, Definitely, you know, being public with how much you appreciate those influences and yeah, sneak them, sneak those things into your playing. But at the end of the day, you've got to be making your own uh, thing and finding your own sound. And and what does the guitar sound like in your head when there is no guitar playing kind of thing, you know? And does that apply to both situations? I think that applies to just music in general, like mm -hmm. as a hired gun. I think when you are working, maybe like I work a lot with Gary Lavox and the Rascal Flats guys. Um, I toured with Flats for a couple, you know, I don't know, 14, 15 months. And then um, now that Gary's doing his solo stuff, obviously we're still playing a ton of Rascal Flats tunes. And uh, I try to approach Joe Don's parts with the respect to Joe Don. And I'm not trying to, um, put too many Andy Wood ornaments on that. Maybe mm -hmm. just something here or there to where it's not like you're not a Kroger brand version of the original, right? You're putting something <laughs> in it that is very genuine to you. Uh, but you're also doing those parts of, with respect. I'm, I've become friends with Mark Tremonti from Creed, right? And Alter Bridge. And I was the guy that had to step into that position when those two Titans split up. Like when Creed split, Scott went to do a record with Howard Benson and then Mark was doing altar bridge and all that stuff. And I was the one brought in to play Mark's parts on the tour, the proof of life tour. So, you know, it's like, I wasn't going to buy a PRS and play it through a boogie and start wearing my hair and clothes like Mark. Like that's not cool because you're just the not as good version of the original. <laughs> right. So like I still did my own thing, but when it came to the parts and the iconic riffs and the hooks, it's like, you really have to respect that. That goes back to respecting your, your listener and your audience and the people that are there to hear the thing that they love. You know, if you play, can you take me higher? And you don't have the, dun, 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 if you don't have that lick in there, everybody's disappointed. Like that's the <laughs> right. thing, you know? So it's like when you talk about um, being able to, able to imitate versus create and where you choose those battles, it's all about just being, if you start with a point of respect, respect the listener and the audience, respect the guy that's writing, writing your name on the check. You know, I think you're going to, navigate your way through it, you know? <laughs> One of my, uh, uh, the surprises that uh, I came across in uh, looking into your, uh, your influences more was uh, finding that Danny Elfman was uh, such a, a feature, you know, you think about Brent Mason, Tony Rice, guys like that, that makes sense. But uh, a film composer was a bit of a departure. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about uh, of Elfman Man and how that uh, influence came to be for you. Yeah, it doesn't even just start and stop with Danny. I mean, Hans Zimmer, John Williams. I mean, dude, the first, I mean, my first memories of music is it's like you can recall these themes instantly. And, and these guys had the 
people forget that those are musicians. A lot of times we just go, Oh, he's a composer. Oh, he's a, you know, whatever, you know, it, 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 it's not, it's still, it's a guy making a melody. You know what I mean? I guess that's my point. And Danny Elfman to me is no different than a Bailiff Fleck. It's just, he's um, using a different canvas, you know, maybe painting Mm -hmm. in a different medium, or maybe he's a sculptor compared to a painter, but he's still an artist. And I remember uh, watching those uh, Johnny Depp era, um, you know, the Tim Michael Burton. Keaton, Tim Burton yeah. films. Yeah. It's like I, the Tim Burton sleepy hollow versus the Michael Keaton Beetlejuice and even the Simpsons, you know, so much cool stuff. And I was like, who is this guy that makes all this stuff? Cause I, so far everything he's done, I love, you know, the Batman theme, the Tim Burton Batman. Um, I was like, I love this guy. So I started digging around and say, I'm same way with John Williams. It's like, dude, star Wars, come on. Like, incredible timeless pieces like i would say this i would say john williams in 200 years will be looked at just like mozart or rachmaninoff or chopin or something because those melodies are that iconic like they are that iconic i know that's a hot take i just Mm -hmm. picked off (laughs) the classical world by saying that but i truly believe it because they're so memorable and they connect with you know billions of people you know, they just connect with everybody and you can go in the middle of a third world country and somebody knows, bum, 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 bum. you know, it's like <laughs> they know the Imperial March. Right. Uh, so it's like these guys, when, when I think about influences, I think that's easily in, in, in my highest echelon round table of influences. And when you talk about a tune like Elfin Man, yeah, it's got the distorted guitar playing it, but even that melody that starts it off, when I hear that in my head, that melody is played on woodwinds clarinets piccolos you know like that rolling kind of creepy melody mm-hmm. um and then the second section the second movement in elfin man is the uh the part where i hear the brass section come in and the thunderous timpanis it's just i'm not just i'm just not using those those instruments i'm using distortion and big rock drums you know mm-hmm. double kick <laughs> interesting our our current episode is the electric violinist tracy silverman and he was talking about a lot of these same themes about how to make you know his his journey with the electric violin has been to bring the violin and and by extension classical music into you know our, our our contemporary vernacular and and he was talking a lot about 
uh, film music being that vehicle as well. Just, just like, just like you just said. So actually your comment that John Williams could be the Mozart of, of tomorrow is, is, you know, a perfect next step <laughs> to the episode that's out right now. I mean, my gosh, Hans Zimmer, I've been obsessed with the score from gladiator lately. I've listened to that mm. thing 30 times last week. It is just incredible. There's a certain movement. And it's just like, it hits me just like a ton of bricks. And I keep going back to that one little, it's in the Elysium movement, but it's like, I think it's like, you know, two thirds of the way through that. I probably not right, but somewhere around there, if you just look it up, you'll find it. You'll know it when it hits you. And I think about that and John Williams and Danny Elfman and all these things, like you said, it's now let's just expand. Let's go back just a little bit and look at how much video games are affecting our culture now. And those composers are the next logical evolution. I mean, my Mm -hmm. God, Steve Vai played electric guitar on halo. You know, you talk about a a culture clash of all these different things. I think it's just the way we as people absorb art through the years that naturally echoes and ripples and affects the mirror image of how we absorb our audio through the years. I mean, yeah, just look at Chopin or Rachmaninoff or whatever. It's like it was about oil paintings and that kind of thing. Now we're just digesting our visual art differently. So but you, yeah, you have to put those those guys in that conversation. Hans Zimmer and John Williams, Danny Elfman, yeah, has and, to. and Steve Vai is writing orchestral music now as well. It's, I mean, yeah, it's like the, the it's so blurred. And then you take a, a you know a kid like Jacob Collier who is just you know really just pressing all of music together. And it's it's just the natural evolution of people, you know. I don't know. I, I, I probably sound too uh, like I maybe took a bad LSD trip there for a minute or something. But really, <laughs> like when I keep thinking about music, that's what it. That's what it is. It's just a reflection of our society and like what what is happening. And and you know, if anybody that's maybe too in love with the idea that there can't be another Mozart, they're not aware that there already is. next for you and where can people find it yeah so writing a new album be on tour with gary a bit this year also hopefully nobody can predict the future but hopefully we'll be back out there um playing my shows soon doing uh corfu greece i'm doing a, a private guitar camp there also the woodshed guitar experience which is a guitar camp in east tennessee we're bringing all these fabulous players. We've had Joe Bonamassa, Andy Timmons, Brent Mason, Robin Ford, Mark Letary, uh, Greg Cock. We've had some great players. And we're doing that again in August. If anybody wants any info on that, woodshedguitarexperience.com as far as my tour schedule. Andywoodmusic.com. That's also the same for my social media, just Andy Wood Music. 
And then, of course, if you are a player and you want to uh, explore some of my uh, tips, tricks, tones, licks, philosophies, all that stuff is at patreon.com slash music. And yeah, there's a lot of a wealth of great videos, great material. Um, you've done a great job offering that, you know, to people. It's a great resource. Thanks so much, Gas. Thank you. It was a lot of fun, Andy. Thanks so much for talking to us. Appreciate y'all. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.